Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Beam. Are you ready to spend 2022 getting the relaxation and sleep you so deserve? This year, prioritize you first with Beam's premium CBD products for sleep. I've had problems sleeping for most of my life, and the slightest thing can completely throw off my sleep pattern. This was usually a great source of stress for me, but now that I've added Beam to my nightly routine, I never have to worry about falling asleep. Beam is the world's most innovative functional wellness brand, and their Dream Powder will give you the best sleep of your entire life. Just mix Dream Powder into hot water or milk, stir, and enjoy a nice cup of hot cocoa before bedtime. Here's why it works. Our bodies have an endocannabinoid system, or a highway of communication between the brain and the body, specifically designed to work with cannabinoids which is why CBD has taken over the wellness world recently. And Beam's Nano CBD dramatically increases your body's ability to absorb CBD, making their products the most effective in the wellness space. It contains natural sleep-promoting ingredients, triple lab-tested, no THC, and you wake up feeling refreshed. I've been using Beam's Dream Powder almost every single night for months now, and I don't think I can ever go back. Sleep comes easy, the drink is delicious, and I wake up well-rested and ready to take on the day. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes like Danica Patrick and Baker Mayfield. For a limited time, get 40% off the first three months of membership or 20% off a one-time purchase when you go to beamorganics.com mcom. That's B-E-A-M organics.com slash M-C-O-M for up to 40% off. Make 2022 the year of you with Beam. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. One thing can change, and in an instant... A once blurry picture can become crystal clear. 
On March 11, 1980, a woman was killed inside her Wisconsin home in a murder that left behind a blurry photo of who was responsible. It would take years and one small phone call for that picture to become sharper and sharper. So much so that a once cold case became reignited and a man was finally placed behind bars. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On March 11, 1980, 23-year-old Lane McIntyre, exhausted from his overnight shift at a local paper plant in Columbus, Wisconsin, walked up to his home and noticed something unusual. The family dog, who was usually inside this early in the morning, was outside on a chain and barking. Thinking it was odd that his wife wouldn't have brought the animal in by now, Lane walked into his one-bedroom apartment and was greeted with his worst possible nightmare. There, lying on the floor the steak knife sticking out of her chest, was his 18-year-old wife, Marilyn. The girl he saved from an abusive foster father, the girl he had been married to since she was 17, was now lying in a pool of her own blood. Thinking quickly, Lane ran into the nursery to ensure their three-month-old son, Christopher, was safe. Securing the infant, Lane made a call to his parents and begged them to call the police. Immediately upon arriving, the police noticed that there was no sign of a forced entry, meaning Marilyn had likely let her murderer into her apartment as if they had known her personally. A decision that cost Marilyn her life. She was beaten and strangled to death, head fractured and neck bruised, with the knife being inserted into her chest post-mortem. There was also evidence of, quote, traumatic sexual contact. According to her official autopsy report, Marilyn took her final breath at or around 3.15 a.m., just a little over four hours before Lane returned home from work. With the evidence collected, of which there was very little, and the scene secured, police were left with one very big question. Who had a deeply violent grudge against the 18-year-old new mother? Their attention, of course, quickly went to Lane, who, though providing a time card that placed him at work during Marilyn's time of death, did work alone and was allowed to take breaks, making his alibi a little on the hazy side. Not to mention the fact that, just days before Marilyn was killed, he had taken out a life insurance policy on his wife. With suspicion mounting, investigators went to speak with the neighbors, who claimed that they were woken up at around 3 a.m. when Marilyn placed the dog outside and it started to bark, which solidified their suspected time of death. According to those who knew Marilyn, there was another suspect that police needed to look into, a man that, in their opinion, was a much stronger person of interest than Lane McIntyre, a man named Curtis Forbes. Curtis was a friend of the McIntyres, who just so happened to be furious with Marilyn because she encouraged his girlfriend at the time, Deborah Adelson, to break things off with him. And, just like Lane, Curtis had a pretty flimsy alibi. According to his testimony, Curtis was out drinking the night that Marilyn was killed and claimed he had gone to see a friend, Lori Beatty, and her boyfriend at around 1 a.m., when police asked Lori to confirm his story, she said that he did come over that night, but at one point offered to go get them some more beer and did not return. According to Curtis, this was because he went over to Deborah's house, but she said he did not arrive until 4 a.m. Curtis had no explanation for the unaccounted for time in his alibi and, after speaking with police, decided to flee town. 
Despite his strange behavior, police in no way had enough evidence to allow for his arrest. Though many stood steadfast in Curtis's guilt, the case of Marilyn McIntyre soon hit a dead end. Years passed with absolutely no progress in the case. Then, a simple phone call changed absolutely everything. In 2007, 27 years after her brutal murder, Marilyn's niece made a phone call, not to the Columbus police, but to the Columbia County Sheriff's Office to ask them about her aunt's cold case. The detectives there had no clue there was an unsolved case, were immediately intrigued by the story she told, and vowed to reopen Marilyn's case using new DNA techniques that they were sure could help solve her murder. Using both fresh eyes and scientific advances, investigators took the blood samples that were found in the bathroom sink of their apartment and found that it contained not only Marilyn's blood, but the blood of a mystery person of interest. Lane McIntyre, whose reputation and the relationship with his son had been ruined after years of suspicion, offered to give a sample. The DNA was not a match, and Lane was officially exonerated. So they set their sights on Curtis Forbes, the only other person of interest named in the original investigation. That's when Lori Beatty came forward and turned the entire investigation right on its own head. According to Lori, she had a conversation with Deborah Adelson years later in which she admitted that Curtis had come to her house at around 4 a.m. and asked her to wash a shirt for him, a shirt that was covered in blood. Lori remembered feeling uncomfortable with the conversation, but knowing the police interviewed Deborah about the night of the murder, assumed she told them about the shirt and nothing came of it. Deborah, at the time, denied any knowledge of the shirt or of the blood. Things were looking bad for Curtis Forbes, but police still needed something concrete to tie him to the crime scene. That's when they made the difficult, calculating, and very public decision to exhume Marilyn's body to search for any new DNA evidence. But DNA was not the only reason they did this. You see, the police made sure that the media knew all about the exhumation and made sure they reported on it far and wide in hopes that it would rattle Curtis enough to make a risky move. They wanted him to know that, though he had spent almost three decades as a free man, they were closing in on him fast. The exhumation ended up being a dead end, but the investigators kept that little tidbit to themselves and waited patiently to see what Curtis would do next. Exactly as they theorized, Curtis started making big plans to get the hell out of Dodge. He had no clue that, as he made his phone calls and purchases, he was under police surveillance. According to police, Curtis planned on purchasing an inflatable raft, bringing it on board with him as he went out onto Lake Michigan, sinking that boat, and taking the raft back to shore. With everyone believing he was dead, he would relocate to Hawaii, where he had already been in contact with the Carpenters Union. Unfortunately for Curtis, while police watched his every move, other investigators re-interviewed Deborah Adelson, who now claimed she did see the blood on his shirt the morning of the murder. She said that her then-boyfriend, now-husband, had shown up at her parents' home in the early morning hours of March 11th, shaking with blood splatters covering his shirt. She asked him what was wrong, and he gave her some offhanded response before asking if she could help him clean up. She said that it was her mother who washed Curtis's shirt. With her interview, police finally had enough to arrest Curtis Forbes, and take a sample of his DNA. 
It was a match for the unknown sample found in Marilyn's sink, and Curtis was officially charged with first-degree murder. During the trial, the prosecution painted the story of a man having been cut off from his ex-girlfriend out on the prowl and looking for sex. A man who knew his friend's schedule and knew that Marilyn McIntyre was home alone at this hour. The woman who was responsible for his breakup and his pent-up frustration. She led him into the home, having no clue what he had planned for her. After less than three hours of deliberation, a jury found Curtis Forbes guilty, and on November 15, 2010, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on March 12th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.